Hello, this is the Poetry Corner with Dr. Timothy Bartell at the St. Constantine School. And today we're going to continue our uh, tradition now of looking at sonnets by looking at a sonnet by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow called Mesocamin. Now, the last episode of this podcast, we talked about a sonnet by Don Patterson called Waking with Russell. And in the middle of that sonnet, he uses a phrase, mezzo del camin, meaning in the middle of the way or in the middle of the journey. And I remarked in that podcast that not only is this the first uh, three words of Dante's Divine Comedy, in the middle of the journey of our life, or something to that effect. Uh, but this is also the title of a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, Longfellow, I must admit, is my favorite American poet, probably my favorite poet ever. And so if I wax uh, sentimental about him, you'll know why. Longfellow was the American poet of the 19th century. We often remember poets like Edgar Allan Poe, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, another one of my favorites, as the major American poets of the 19th century. And to our maybe late 20th and 21st century eyes, that may seem so. But in the 19th century, Longfellow was regarded as the American poet par excellence, not only in America, but also around the world. So Longfellow is a world-renowned poet in the 19th century. Longfellow mostly wrote a poetry of encouragement. He's very famous for the Psalm of Life, uh, which was seen as sort of a manly poem that sort of gave a buck up, everything will be okay type message. Longfellow, though, wrote privately several sonnets that he wouldn't allow to be published because he thought that they were too depressing. Now, the 20th century has come to see those sonnets as uh, two of the most important and memorable of the sonnets he wrote. The 20th century, I think, is a little obsessed uh, with the sad, perhaps even the morbid. I think this explains a bit our obsession with Edgar Allan Poe, who, though he was well-regarded uh, here and there, was not the titanic influence and major author that Longfellow was to the 19th century audience. So this poem was written when Longfellow was 35. Longfellow spent a lot of his post-college years in Europe. He wanted to do something that really was unheard of in his day, which is graduate from college and become a professional writer. And his father said, well, that's just not done. No one can do that in America. You need to become a lawyer. And Longfellow petitioned Bowdoin College to see if they needed someone to teach modern languages because he was quite good at languages. And in fact, they did need someone to teach modern languages. Their old modern language teacher was retiring. And so Longfellow decided that he would go, and this was on the recommendation of Bowdoin, to Europe for a year or so to study modern languages. He loved it so much that he ended up going back a couple years later. When he went back a couple years later, though, he took his uh, new wife and uh, she was pregnant with their first child. Well, very sad, Longfellow's wife and his unborn child both died in Europe while Longfellow was supposed to be brushing up on Scandinavian languages. Longfellow, of course, was devastated, and he mooned around Germany for an extra year or so uh, in his grief. And it's at this point 
just before he's about to go back to America. He had just been appointed professor of modern languages at Harvard. He's, he writes a sonnet called Mesocamin. Now, Mesocamin means halfway along the journey, but as we know, of course, it's from the longer line, uh, Mezzo del Camin di Nostra Vita, halfway along the journey of our life. For Dante in the 1300s, this would have been understood as middle age, which would have been about 35 years old. So Longfellow is 35, his wife has died. Uh, I like to think, and there's some evidence from this in Longfellow's own writings, that he thought of himself a little bit like Dante. Dante, who fell in love with Beatrice, and then Beatrice died, and Dante felt abandoned by what had been beautiful and good in the world. Longfellow feels a little bit of that. Uh, there's this slightly depressing, if also fascinating, passage in Longfellow's journals when he's in grief in Europe, where he talks about hearing cries in the evening in a little European city that he's in. And he goes outside and apparently the town church has caught on fire. And he describes in detail watching it burn for hours. It's fascinating. It's also kind of sad. Like, Longfellow, should you be dwelling on burning churches in your state? Anyway, out of this mooning around Europe, grief-stricken, comes this sonnet. I want to read it and then talk about it a little bit, not just in relation to itself and to Dante, but also to the later sonnet that we looked at last time by Don Patterson, which also deals with uh, similar themes. So this is called Mezzo Camin. Half of my life is gone, and I have let the years slip from me, and have not fulfilled the aspiration of my youth to build some tower of song with lofty parapet. Not indolence, nor pleasure, nor the fret of restless passions that would not be stilled, but sorrow, and a care that almost killed, kept me from what I may accomplish yet. Though halfway up the hill, I see the past, lying beneath me with its sounds and sights, a city in the twilight, dim and vast, with smoking roofs, soft bells, and gleaming lights, and here above me, on the autumnal blast, the cataract of death far thundering from the heights. Compared to Don Patterson's Waking with Russell, which also calls upon this Dantean Italian beginning, this is a bit more consistent in its gloom. Patterson, as we saw last time, feels himself to be a gloomy middle-aged man, but his son smiling at him sort of reawakens and re-enlivens the youth and vitality in him. Longfellow, on the other hand, is kind of gloomy all the way through and ends with this uh, vision of death. I want to look at it as a sonnet that is about, well, the making of poems, perhaps even the making of sonnets. Dante, as we know, started out his life, started out his poetic life, that is, his poetic career, writing short poems about love and grief and sadness and delight in the beloved in the Levita Nova. And it was actually from these short poems. Not all of them were 14 lines or had the strict ABBA, ABBA, CDE, CDE rhyme scheme, but they were sort of son sonnet-ish poems. In fact, sonnet just means little song. And it was Petrarch who kind of codified this Dantean short romantic poem tradition into what we know now as the Italian sonnet tradition. Longfellow is drawing on this. Let's look at it line by line. 
half of my life is gone, and I have lacked the years slip from me, and have not fulfilled the aspiration of my youth to build some tower of song with lofty parapet. Those are the first four lines, and we can see already that there's an Italian rhyme scheme going on. Let, fulfilled, build, parapet, A-B-B-A. So this is firmly in the Petrarchan or Italian sonnet tradition. But it begins like the Italian epic tradition, half of my life. He doesn't say half of our life, so there's a personal, maybe even individual quality to this beginning of this first line that is in fact not in Dante. Dante says, midway through the journey of our life. Dante is right away signaling that there are allegorical depths to his poem. Longfellow is keeping it personal and individual. Half of my life is gone and I have let the years slip from me." Now it's interesting, I mean, here was a man who had uh, had a lot of success uh, academically, professionally, in his young life, and he seems like someone, he's in Europe studying, brushing up on Scandinavian languages to go teach modern languages at the most prestigious school in America, Harvard. It seems like someone like him would perhaps be quite grateful that uh, he's accomplished so much in his young life. Instead, he's saying he has let the years slip from him. There's something in his looking at his half of a life that he feels like he is responsible for things slipping away. Now, of course, he's in grief over not just his loved ones, his whole family has died in Europe his wife and his unborn child. And so it's not hard, I think, to imagine that professional accomplishments would not be on his mind. But if we keep reading, I think professional accomplishments are kind of on Longfellow's mind. I have let the years slip from me and have not fulfilled what? Have not fulfilled my desire to have a family? No. Have not fulfilled the aspiration of my youth to build some tower of song with lofty parapet. Longfellow, you rascal. We went through this whole thing about how you went to Europe and you lost your wife and unborn child and it's so sad and we expected a downer of a poem about how sad you are that, you, that your loved ones have died and you're far away from the rest of your family. Instead, you're complaining that you haven't written enough. Longfellow, I think, can be criticized and has been criticized for sometimes expressing his innermost turmoil and it turning out to be, in fact, precisely about professional poetic literary accomplishment. He had an aspiration in his youth, he says, to build some tower of song with lofty parapet. Now, we know from a poem written not too long before this, the prelude poem to his first collection, Voices of the Night, that he says, I will take on a new tone and write new types of poems. He says, the solemn voices of the night, let these be henceforth thy theme at the end of that poem. So we know that he's expressed recently in verse that he in fact does have aspiration. He wants to sing of the voices of the night. Now, the voices of the night, if one has at all spent time with German romantic poetry, is in fact a reference to the hymns of the night by Novalis, who's an early verse innovator in the uh, German romantic scene. So Longfellow 
doesn't just have this, oh, I want to write great poems because I'm an American and I'll be the first one to do it. No, he in fact, in his other works has said, look, I want to live up to the great European poets, in particular, the great German poets. Sometimes Longfellow has been accused of being a little too similar in his verse structures and in his language to the Romantic poets, uh, Wordsworth, Coleridge, uh, Keats. Longfellow, for his part, didn't look to them as his main predecessors. He looked to the poets of Europe. If he looked at English poetry, he looked back to, to people like Chaucer or Shakespeare or even Beowulf. He translates some of the poetry from Beowulf in his early career. So Longfellow here, he has a complicated thing he's trying to say. He had an aspiration of his youth to build a tower of song with lofty parapet. And that tower of song, he wants to measure up to the songs of Europe. And in fact, if we look back at this first line, it's not just the songs of Europe of his immediate predecessors, the German Romantics. It's the old medieval Italian tradition that includes, at the very least, Dante and Petrarch. Dante and Petrarch are the height of uh, late medieval moving into early Renaissance poetry. Longfellow is being pretty bold. And in fact, we said this with Patterson as well. To call upon Dante, especially this opening line of the comedy, is to put your reader in mind of one of the great, if not the greatest, masterpiece of European literature. You have to be a pretty confident poet or pretty daft in order to do that. Let's see if Longfellow can uh, hold his own against calling up the ghost of Dante before us. He says, not indolence nor pleasure nor the fret of restless passions that would not be stilled, but sorrow and a care that almost killed kept me from what I may accomplish yet. Ah, there's the sorrow. If he never talked about being sad in this poem, we might think that he has his priorities wrong. He's telling us how sorrow is fitting in to his state of mind. What he's saying is, I haven't been able to accomplish in verse, in literary art, what I want to accomplish. It wasn't because I was lazy. When we hear, I have let the years slip from me, we might think, oh, he's saying, hey, I've been lazy. I got to get to work. No, not indolence, nor pleasure. He hasn't been living it up. He hasn't been living the life of the, the Lothario. Uh, there was, in fact, a journalist who was describing Longfellow's trips to Italy, where they muse that perhaps he was living it up, and they even use that word Lothario. He was this American Lothario of Europe. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not living it up. I'm not doing the stereotypical artist parties all day because he doesn't want to do work. No, it's not that I was lazy. It's not that I was partying too much. It's not the fret of restless passions that would not be stilled. It's not because I had have these vices or pleasures that I seek. It's sorrow. It's a care that almost killed. Sorrow has kept him from literary accomplishment. Now, I'm not sure ethically how we want to estimate this claim. I think it's honest. It's interesting, though, that he's placing literary accomplishment as his great desire. And the sorrow, the grief that he's experienced, is the thing that keeps him from that. that that's, a, that's a very honest thing and, and not, I think, the most flattering picture of him, but it's honest. And it's, I think, one of the reasons why the 20th century, even when they've thrown out a lot of the other poetry of 
Longfellow as sentimental or didactic rubbish, has kept this poem. There's an honesty, an artistic honesty to it. Let's keep reading. He says, Sorrow and a care that almost killed kept me from what I may accomplish yet. Ah, there's that hope. There's that possibility of moving forward. Though, uh-oh, it's going to get depressing again. Though, halfway up the hill, I see the past. Now, P is capitalized in that past. So there's, th this is the past. I see the past lying beneath me with its sounds and sights. A city in the twilight, dim and vast with smoking roofs, soft bells, and gleaming lights. Uh, Longfellow loves this. Longfellow loved the countryside uh, of Italy, of Germany, and he, in his journals and in his other poetry, celebrates this kind of scene. Here, though, it's allegorized. He's saying, I'm halfway up the hill. This would be a common experience, especially for someone in, in the foothills of the Alps or in the, in the hills around the Rhine River that Longfellow uh, moodily haunted for a while. But he allegorizes it. He's halfway up the hill and looks down and sees the past. The hill has become not just something you walk up to have a good view, but the hill is somehow the hill of life, the mountain that is the timeline maybe of his life, maybe even of history. He says, I see the past lying beneath me with its sounds and sights. The past is a city in the twilight, dim and vast. And then he shows off his poetic muscle a little bit with smoking roofs, soft bells, and gleaming lights. If he had just said, there's a pretty city, it has smoking roofs, soft bells, and gleaming lights, we might say, oh, that's nice, but I've kind of heard that before. Ah, but all of that is description, allegorically, of the past. And the fact that he's in Europe, the fact that he's looking at the European past, which is so much older, especially in Longfellow's mind, than any past sites or monuments or artifacts or architecture that he could see in America, I think, I think makes that even stronger. Europe, to him, is the past. But Longfellow, as a traditionalist, sees the past as important. He doesn't want to move past the past and forget it. He wants to be informed by it. And now he takes the analogy further in these last two lines. He's seen the past, which is like a city in the twilight, and here above me on the autumnal blast, the cataract of death, capital D, death, far thundering from the heights. So it's not just that the past is lying behind him, it's, it's tranquil, it's beautiful, it's meaningful, but there is a cataract of death. He hears the waterfall ahead. He doesn't see it, he hears it. And it's associated with the cataract on the autumnal blast. He can hear the blast of autumn. So we not only have this spatial metaphor for life, namely the hill, but now we also have this temporal metaphor, autumn is coming. He's middle-aged, he's coming to the autumn years. He seems kind of squeezed here a bit. The past is there, and it's beautiful, and it's tranquil, but you know what? He didn't do what he wanted to do, and sorrow has almost killed him. And when he looks at the future, what he may accomplish yet, what's the main sensation? The sound of the waterfall of death. Longfellow isn't here to cheer us up. Longfellow isn't here to give us easy platitudes. 
Longfellow is someone who, I think even in the poetry that has sometimes been called didactic, is someone who wants to be honest, as honest as he can be, about his experience of the artistic life, of the life of the heart, and of the presence of death and the past, and how they both loom large. He seems sort of squeezed in this poem between these two great things, and there's something he wants to accomplish. Now, it's helpful to know, I think, uh, biographically speaking, that when this is written, this is the end of uh, the 1930s, beginning of the 1940s, that he would have written this. Longfellow, when he gets back from Europe, will become professor of modern languages at Harvard. He will fall in love and woo and have a tumultuous relationship with and end up marrying a young girl, Frances Appleton. They will have many kids together. He will write many poems that become internationally famous only to watch his second wife burn to death in a freak accident. And then he will go through another period of depression. His son will go off to the Civil War against his wishes. He'll translate the Divine Comedy partly to assuage his grief. He'll become the father of Dante studies in America and then write several other masterpieces late in his life and die a national hero. So Longfellow has a long and multitudinous life. And I think this poem, Mezzo Kamin, he thinks he's halfway there. He's barely begun his poetic career. But he's already lived, I think, more than many of us have lived. He's felt sorrows more than many of us have. And I think when we think about poetry, and I've, I've stressed in these, in these podcasts the importance of form, one of the things that form, like the sonnet, can do is it can be a place to pour our anxieties, to pour our feelings of being caught between a past that we didn't do what we wanted to do and death which is coming. We can pour those things and somehow hold them in the tense order that poetic form gives to thoughts. And when we come to poems like this, I think it's important to remember both the honesty of the poet, like Longfellow. Not all poets are honest in their work. Many poets write with some other character or speaker in mind. I don't want to say that we should assume that all poetic speakers are being open and honest and autobiographical with us. But here, I think it's safe to say that likely Longfellow is being honest with us, as honest as he can be in this poem at the young age of 35. And he reminds us that to put those thoughts in a sonnet is somehow to order them such that they last. This has been the Poetry Corner with Dr. Timothy Bartell at the St. Constantine School. Thank you for listening.